So Andrew Jackson becomes president, and to to some of the elites, it's terrifying. Um, and and he was he was a Western man. He was a general, but he was not. He was a, he was a he was like a, a general who fought Native Americans. He took Florida in eighteen nineteen under kind of questionable circumstances, um, and. He, in his inauguration, threw a huge party in the White House, and the White House kind of got trashed by like tons of people who showed up. And for all of these like Washington senators and people, they were like, "Oh my God, this is the nightmare right here, right?" Uh, and people like to tell the story of Andrew Jackson having this big block of cheese that he would put out, and then anybody, the idea was like, anybody who wants some cheese come on in and get some cheese at the White House. Like, anybody's welcome, you know, as long as you're a white guy, pretty much. But, um, you know, uh, strongly pro-slavery, um, strongly anti-Native American. Um, but Jackson's interesting because at the same time as being really about the people, he also has this view of the presidency that is that the president should be really powerful. And his argument for that rests on the idea that the president is the only person in government who's elected by everyone in the country. You know, you vote for your local senator, you vote for your local representative, your governor, right? They're all voted for by a small part of the country. The president is an actual person who the people have chosen. And so the phrase that we associate with Jackson is Jacksonian democracy. And I think the question with Jacksonian democracy, is it more about democracy or is it more about Jackson? And, but that puts him in an interesting position vis-a-vis the argument that the country's continuing to have about should states control things or should the federal government. In general, he's very suspicious of the federal government and of elites, but he also is not suspicious of his own ability to make big decisions for everyone. And there's a big fight over banks at this time, and he's very much against um, powerful banks and economic systems based around national banks. And so he vetoes the bill to create uh, to actually to recharter the National Bank of the United States. And instead, he puts all of the money into a bunch of small local banks that are aligned with his political movement, and they were called the pet banks. Um, and him vetoing it, presidents hadn't used vetoes in this way before. This is a veto where he says, I just think this is wrong, and so I'm going to veto it. And he was very clear about that. Um, and so that's sort of a move that aligns him more with like states, like let's support the states. But then his uh, vice president, John Calhoun, who uh, is one of the most virulent pro-slavery activists, he's from South Carolina. Um, John Calhoun writes a, while vice president anonymously writes this argument, I think it's, I think it's a, a bill that ends up passing the South Carolina legislature, where basically South Carolina says the same thing that Jefferson and Madison said before. If we disagree with a law, we won't follow it. And in this case, the law is a tariff, which everyone's brains, when they hear the word tariff, like immediately go to sleep, including mine. But uh, tariffs are about protecting industry. And so when you think about the North and South as the North is like the industrial area and the South is the area that's like exporting their cotton and stuff, the North always wants tariffs to protect their ability to like build up factories. And the South doesn't want tariffs because they want to sell their cotton to England, 
who have like the best factories in the world. So South Carolina doesn't want uh, a tariff. And the vice president secretly writes this thing that says, we're just not going to follow it. And Jackson is enraged by this. And basically, it seems like he's enraged because it's questioning his power. Um, but it ends up being sort of an, advo he's an advocate for federal power in this case. He says states don't get to nullify laws. And that's not okay. And so the end of Jackson's presidency is like this moment where he's kind of holding the country together in certain ways um, through sheer force of personality. Now, the other thing we have to talk about during Andrew Jackson's presidency is the Trail of Tears. When uh, Congress passes a law called the Indian Removal Act, and basically it's a forced march of Native Americans from Georgia out to what is later Oklahoma because people want that land. And it was based on the idea that these Native Americans were dangerous, but you know, uh, the legal argument for it is pretty questionable. And actually some of the Native Americans are citizens and end up bringing a lawsuit to the Supreme Court. So now again, here we have a situation where the Supreme Court is having to decide a really important law, whether it's constitutional or not. And the Supreme Court rules against the Indian Removal Act. They say you don't have the right to do this. Um, and this is still John Marshall, that same guy who was, who was hanging on since the Adams administration. We're now in the 18, late 1820s, uh, early 1830s, actually, by the time of Indian removal. And Jackson reads the news that the Supreme Court has made this decision. And he famously says, Mr. Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. And that's a scary statement because basically what it calls out is the fact that the Supreme Court doesn't actually have the power to force anyone to do anything unless you respect their decision. And Jackson, in refusing to enforce the Supreme Court's decision, was basically refusing to follow the systems of checks and balances that was supposed to protect people from any part of the government going amok. Now, my students always hear this story and are like, well, then what can we do? Like, how do we fix it? And I was like, well... You know, what other options are there? They're like, oh, he's violating the Constitution. We can impeach him. And they could have probably for saying that. That's like indirect violation of checks and balances. But of course they didn't because it was Congress that had passed the Indian Removal Act. And so I find this moment to be, in addition to being a, a moment where we should notice the like truly genocidal nature of westward expansion, like retell this story and tell it with Jews in Eastern Europe being forced off of their land and marched somewhere. And I think for a lot of Americans, that story has a different feeling than the sort of way that we've gotten used to talking about Native Americans being forced to move from place to place. But like their claim to the land is equally, or I think by almost any measure, more legitimate than these white people who are there. And they're being forced to like leave their homeland and so deep shame, you know, should be felt by all modern Americans about that event. But there's also a certain feeling you should get that's chilling about the fact that when it comes down to it, what really matters is what the people who are in government are willing to do, not the rules. At the end of the day, the rules are just paper. And Jackson's the first president, um, by some measures, to openly say that he's not going to follow 
the Constitution in in this case, at least. Um, so those are kind of the dramas of the Jackson era. And in the meantime, you're seeing this kind of cultural shift of Western populist anti-bank people coming in. And there's some backlash to, to the excesses of this. Um, but Jackson changes American democracy forever. He makes the president a figure who, instead of being this kind of gentlemanly removed figure, is very much in the battle the whole time. Um, a fun story about Andrew Jackson is that while he was president, um, an assassin came and tried to shoot him. He was in a parade. He jumps out. He has two guns, aims them both directly at Jackson, and pulls the trigger on both guns. And it's incredible, even at the time when guns were not that good, through some miracle, both guns misfire at the same time. And then Andrew Jackson leaves the parade. He's pretty old at this time. He's like in his 60s. And he chases after the guy who was just trying to shoot him and he has a cane and he's hitting the guy with the cane over and over again. And I feel like that story like captures Andrew Jackson better than anyone, you know? Like what an insane thing to do. But there's a part of you that has to kind of marvel at what it means for the United States that we've gone from like a George Washington like reserved figure to a guy who literally beats up his own assassins. 